If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 will be in verses 12 through 25 today. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 850, 850. As we begin, um, would you bow with me for just a moment? God, prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Mark chapter 14. Uh, Maybe uh, you have heard it said before. It goes like this. Don't let life happen to you. Make life happen. You've heard that uh, before. That might not sound too bad, uh, as proactivity is is a good thing. Uh, Being a a mere spectator in life is not really the goal either. However, you don't have to live very long to realize that there are a lot of things that happen to you. There are a lot of things that you cannot control. That, in fact, there are there, there are many things that are absolutely out of your control. You know, you may be happily rolling along throughout life, and suddenly your plans are upended through an unforeseen circumstance. Some of us know exactly what that's like, don't we? You and I can't necessarily control all aspects of our health, our physical well-being. We can't control our employer or our neighbor, or that crazy uncle. We can't control the the gas prices, or the stock market, or the patterns of weather. Uh, This could cause us to to feel a sense of dread, or fear, or anxiety, with so much out of our control. Uh, Some, I won't name any names in this room, uh, of course not in this room, some people are control freaks. Right? Some people can't imagine life outside of their perceived control. So this could cause us to have a lot of anxiety, or it could cause us to recognize that though we are not in control, there is one who is. There is one who knows all things. There is one who is good. There is one who can be trusted with our very lives. As we continue today going through the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus in his final hours, and really in his final, final, the final days, but really his final hours here, here on earth. Now, some have interpreted these final days as evidence that Jesus was no more than a helpless bystander that was moved along by the, the crushing plans of, of evil men, despite his promises and despite his power. Yet this could not be further from the truth. Jesus, as we will see, was not caught off guard by anything, anything that he encountered, especially in his final days. See, unlike you and me, he was in in control. He was sovereignly ordering the ordained events for him. He was embracing the divine appointment of the Father on the cross for the sake of God's glory in the salvation of many. 
Here in Mark chapter 14, we can see three ways that Jesus showed his control. The first is that Jesus showed his control as he arranged the upper room. Look at verse 12 with me. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. At the time of the at the time, this was at the time of the Passover meal. It was getting close, a time when, when all the Jewish people would observe. Uh, this Passover meal, the disciples were asking Jesus, where, where are we going? Like, it's, coming, it's coming. We're a few hours away from this. We probably should get ready. Where, where are we going to eat? So Jesus gives some directions to them. We, you just heard those read. And it, Mark says that there's two disciples that he told to go. Well, in Luke's gospel, we find out who those two disciples were. This was Peter and this was John. And he told them to go into Jerusalem and that they would find a man carrying a jug of water. Now this is reminiscent of back in chapter 11 when Jesus was going before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He told his disciples to go get the colt. And he told them where it would be and how it would be tied up and that they were to bring it to him. Some similar things we see here. Now at first read, we might say this doesn't sound like much of a sign. A guy carrying a jug of water. That doesn't seem like that would be uh, real helpful. However, what is helpful is to know that customarily, women carried the jars of water. Men, if they carried the water at all, carried water skins. And so this guy would have been unusual. He actually would have stuck out. One commentator says it would be like a man carrying a purse. It would be that unusual. Now, that was said in a time when that was unusual. Unfortunately, today, that might not be as unusual as it once was, but you get the point. Once they found the man, he would show them the upper room. And then verse 16 tells us what happens next. Look with me there. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. See, Jesus spoke and it was just as he said. Jesus sovereignly planned, he arranged, he prearranged this room, this, this place for the Passover meal. And why was it so important? Because this this meal was a a meal that all of the the Jews would celebrate. But what was so important about that was what was going to go on in that room that very night. It was especially important as Jesus knew that this was his last Passover. his, His last supper, as we would come to call it. We find here that Jesus doesn't actually tell the disciples the location. He doesn't even tell the two the location. The disciples don't know. One of the reasons is uh, suggested is that he, he kept the, the location hidden from, uh, from the, the disciples in part, or, or maybe ideally or primarily because of Judas. Uh, Judas, we know, had already committed to betray Jesus. So Jesus didn't want to give him any more information of where he would be at this time because the events that were to unfold that night were that important. But in the midst of his final hours... 
with his death looming, Jesus was in control. Note that. Kent Hughes says this, a God who is in control when the foundations of his earthly existence are crumbling is a God who can be trusted to sustain us when it appears our life is tumbling in. Maybe you have experienced life tumbling in. Maybe you have felt the the very ground or felt as though the very ground of your life was giving way. Here's what you can know. Jesus knows exactly what that's like. Jesus knows what it's like when, when life feels like it's tumbling in. The great difference is what feels like what is out of control to us, Jesus was in complete control willfully submitting himself to the will of the Father, trusting the Father, enduring it all for the joy that was set before him. And how could we say the same? You and I know that we can't control when, when and if life comes tumbling in. So how, how, can we, how can we act in this way? How could we ever? A favorite psalm in Psalm chapter 46 gives us this catastrophic picture of an event. In Psalm chapter 46, the psalmist writes about the earth giving way and the mountains being cast into the sea. That's a pretty wild event. You can imagine that, right? Imagine that that physically happening. We've heard of earthquakes. We've we've heard of mudslides and and these kind of things where where the, the ground is moving, maybe even under your very feet. How could you, how could you not worry? How could you not be anxious? How could you not fear when those kind of experiences are happening? Yet even in that time, or even in a time like that, maybe, maybe that's a metaphor for the way you feel, the earth giving way underneath your feet. How could you ever not fear? Well, the answer actually is in the first verse of that psalm. The first verse of that psalm says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The next verse says, therefore we will not fear, even though the earth gives way and the mountains are cast into the heart of the sea. Why can we not fear even when things feel out of control, even when life is tumbling in? Because God is present, because God is our help. Because he is in control and we can trust him. Jesus was in control. He was trusting the Father. In a God, in a God who, who is in control even when things feel like they are falling apart is a God we can trust. Well, the gospel writer continued by describing Jesus' interactions with his disciples over the meal. And here he shows his control as he announces or predicts his betrayer. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, let's just stop right there for a second. This is probably Thursday night. Uh, Our Thursday night, about 6 p.m. approximately. Jesus was with the 12 in the upper room. It is thought that between verse 17 and verse 18 is where we get John's account of the washing of, of the feet where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, that that event would be inserted somewhere around between 17 and 18. And after that washing, 
Jesus, it was said in John chapter 13, verse 21, says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Why would he be troubled in his spirit? Well, Mark goes on to describe the next scene as they're reclining at table. Uh, this, this reclining is not actually feet forward, it's actually feet behind. Okay, so the table was low, and they were leaning forward, probably on their left arm, leaning forward, their head near the table, their feet behind them. They're leaning forward to this table. Uh, based on John's writing, it would seem that, that, that beside Jesus to his right was John, and to his left would have been Judas, based on how the interactions at the table would have gone. And as they're reclining at the table, Jesus drops a bombshell on the disciples. A shocking statement about who the betrayer would be. Look at verse, the rest of verse 18. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, or I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. The response from the disciples comes in verse 19. And they began to be sorrowful and said to him, one after another, is it I? Or literally, it isn't I, is it? Note that they didn't look around and say, I've always thought that guy was shady over there. <laughs> right? That guy always looked like a betrayer to me. They didn't even point out Judas. Like, think about that. Think about how fake Judas was, and yet how good at being fake he was. Pretty, pretty remarkable stuff, in fact. But even we find in Matthew's gospel that Judas even says this to Jesus. It isn't me. Right? Hypocritically, of course. In one way or another, the answer obviously is Judas. In one way, it's obviously Judas, right? We know that. But in another way, as one, one commentator points out, it was everybody. Everybody actually did betray him. You know that, right? They all left him. <laughs> they didn't do what Judas did. But, but, but when things got hot, they, they ran. They all left him. They all betrayed him. They all fled. Judas did it for greed. Others did it out of weakness or fear or cowardice. They all did it. But we ought to caution, show some caution here to not be too hard on the disciples. And remember that all sin is a betrayal. Our sin is a betrayal. When we sin, we say to God, what you did isn't good enough. We say to God, I want something other than you. I don't believe that, that you have the way of life. I don't believe that what you have is good enough. I want more. I want something else. The way of Jesus, the commands of God are not good enough. We desire something more. And yet, here's the good news. We can thank God that it is actually that very reason. Our sin, our betrayal. It's that reason that Jesus came to do what he did. It, it's our sin that put him on the cross. It's our sin that, that for which he had to die, be buried, and rose again in order that our sins, our betrayal, may be forgiven. And the good news is, is that is exactly what the scriptures tell us is true. That our sins can be forgiven. That whosoever would confess their sins, God will forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. Well, Jesus continues and said to them, 
it is one of the 12 who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, this doesn't actually really narrow it down because they're all dipping the dish with him, right? They're, they're all reclining at this table. They're, they're all eating. But, but John is a little more specific. John 13, verse 26, he says, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. But do you know that after that happens, the disciples still don't know who the guy is. They still don't know. They think that maybe Judas was going to go, go do something, go buy something for them. They still didn't suspect Judas. It's amazing. Even after this exchange, they're still confounded. Again, Kent Hughes writes, in the culture of the day, to take a morsel from the, from the table and dip it into a common dish and offer it to another was a gesture of friendship. What was Jesus doing with Judas? He was offering him friendship. Jesus knew what, what Judas was up to. He knew what Judas had done. He knew what Judas was planning to go do. And yet here, in this last moment, this guy he knows is a betrayer. He knows is against him. He still gives him another chance. He still offers him friendship. There's a way out, Judas. You don't have to do this. Take. Take this morsel. Take my friendship. Take the forgiveness that I am extending to you. The point being stressed, though, from Jesus was that the one who would betray him was one who ate with him, meaning this one was a supposed friend. One commentary says that to eat uh, with a person and then to betray him was the height of treachery. And it seems that Jesus may have had in mind what the psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, David writing this, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who I ate my bread, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Here, Jesus offered the morsel to Judas. He offered him friendship. Judas didn't have to take it. The invitation was there and he declined. But here's the good news for you and me. The invitation is still available to you and me. That Jesus offers through his body, right, represented by this, 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 this bread, friendship. He offers forgiveness for anyone who would repent and believe. Jesus offers friendship and forgiveness through his work for you. It is in the gospel it is in and through the work of Jesus that we are reconciled to God, no longer enemies, but brought near as friends. Right? This, is, this is a beautiful picture of here, this enemy of Jesus, and Jesus is reaching out to him. And you and I can put ourselves in the place of Judas more times than we'd like to, care, like to, to, to believe, and here Jesus is reaching out to us as well. Well, Judas did take the morsel, but not the friendship, not the forgiveness. And instead, he went out to betray him. Before he did that, Jesus offered a warning to his betrayer. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man, does, uh, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better, it would have been better for that man to not have been born. 
Uh, Jesus pronounces a woe, a condemnation, a, a warning against this betrayer. And this was not vindictive. He was actually stating the reality that by doing this, by going down this road, life actually would be better. Well, it would be better if you didn't have life. And we could contrast Jesus' comments to Judas with Jesus' comments to, to uh, Mary of Bethany when she broke the flask over his head. That she will be remembered whenever the gospel is preached. Right? She, she's, her testimony is going to outlive her. And here, this man, it would be better if his, he never even was born. We can see here in verse 21 something important. There, there are two truths here of God's sovereignty, God's control, and man's responsibility or man's agency. Look, look at verse 21 again. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Which means God had a plan for what would happen to Jesus. God's sovereign. What's the next part? But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Human responsibility. Judas acted. Judas did a thing. He did a thing of his own volition. He did it. And he's responsible for it. One pastor says, man is responsible in human history, but God is sovereign over human history. You see, what happened to Jesus was ordained by God. See, Judas didn't, didn't run, run, a, run a side, uh, a flank on, on God right here and, and kind of wiggled his way in to disrupt God's plan. Now, this was ordained by God, but his will does not take away man's responsibility. It doesn't take away your responsibility or my responsibility. God calls those who, who would come to him, but we are responsible to respond. It is man's moral responsibility that is in play here. We see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or man's agency to act. We too have responsibility. Like Judas, those who are lost today are, are lost due to their failure to repent and believe. Their, their failure to respond and take their responsibility. May the Spirit of God, through the gospel of God, open the eyes of those who are far from God, even yet this morning. The Gospel of John tells us that after Judas left the, open the upper room, Jesus then showed his control another way. We see this in verses 22 through 25 as he authorized the Lord's Supper, or what we come to know as the Lord's Supper. This meal is sometimes called the Last Supper, as it was the last night before Jesus died. It was the, the last Passover meal that Jesus would have with his disciples. It was a Passover meal, which included unleavened bread and cups of wine. We said uh, at, at Easter that the first person to record the resurrection of Jesus was not the Gospels, it was the Apostle Paul. And the first person to record what happened in the upper room was not the, 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 the gospel writers, but it was, again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there he calls this the, the Lord's Supper. There are other terms for this. Sometimes we call it communion. We can see that word where we draw that word from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Some others in other traditions call it the Eucharist, which might... might feel funny uh, to, to us, 
Uh, that sounds like a, a Catholic word, and that is what Catholicism calls it. Why do they call it that? Because that word is derived from the words that we see in verse 23, give thanks. That's what that word, that's where that word comes from. So the Eucharist means to give thanks, which Jesus tells us to do during the Lord's Supper. This supper we see includes the bread and the cup. Bread and, and wine were two common elements at the Passover. But what Jesus is doing here is he is reinterpreting these two elements. He's giving them new meaning, important meaning. He's instituting a supper for the remembrance of what was coming. That is his death. These elements we understand as symbols. We're going to read it in just a moment. But Jesus holds up the bread and says, this is my body. And he holds up the cup and he says, this is my blood. Clearly, Jesus is speaking figuratively here. As we take communion in a few minutes, these are symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus. We could say Jesus' words, this represents my body and this represents my blood. Now, not all churches or traditions agree with that, as some of you may know. But we can know that that's true for three reasons. One is when Jesus says it, he is physically present with them. How does the bread become his body if he is physically present with them? How does the wine become his blood if he's physically present with them? Now, some might say, well, he's not present anymore. He's gone now. So when we take communion now, why can't it become his body? Why can't it become his blood? Well, here's the reason. <laughs> because Jesus died once and for all. That's why. For that to continue to become his body and to continue to become his blood would mean that Jesus is dying again. Jesus does not need to die again. He died once and he died for all. Secondly, Jesus often spoke figuratively. Think about what Jesus says, I am the door. Could anyone ever conclude that Jesus meant that he's a door? No one would conclude that. That's a figurative statement. Or I am the light of the world. He didn't think he was actually a light. That's metaphoric. That's figurative language. So here when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, he is clearly speaking figuratively. Lastly, a literal interpretation of that statement would not even be on the radar for the Jews. That, that Jesus would ever say that this was his body and this was his blood. Why? Because it, it would be a violation of the Old Testament law that forbid the consumption of blood. Now, there's another place in the gospel where Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And some people were taken aback by that. <laughs> and actually, in chapter 6, we find out that people left him. Because they're like, this is crazy. Right? What was he getting at? He's getting at the same thing here. If you don't, you're not part of him, if you're not participating with him, clearly, figurative language. Well, Jesus interprets the, the, the new meaning of the bread in verse 22. Look at it. And as they were eating, <coughs> he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Again, the bread is symbolizing the body of Christ, his life, his body, his physical body that was pierced for our transgressions. One commentator says that in the bread, we see the incarnation of Jesus. We see the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the body of Jesus. Secondly, we see the cup, verse 23. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, there's your Eucharist word, he gave it to them, and they 
all drank of it. And he said to them, this is blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The cup here, the color of blood, pictures blood. It, it pictures sacrifice. This blood of the new covenants, the new covenant is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, speaks to just that, the new covenants that was established by Christ in contrast to the old covenant, which Warren Wearsby writes this, on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the old covenants. He fulfilled the law. He established the new covenants. The old covenant was ratified by the blood of animal sacrifices. You remember hearing of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. That's how the Old Testament was ratified. But now the New Testament, the new covenant has come. It was ratified how? By the blood of God's Son. What was Jesus pointing to when he says, this is my blood? He's pointing to the fact that he would die. That his blood would be shed for the remission of sins. In fact, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, says Hebrews chapter 9. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ's atoning work. And this blood was, Jesus says, poured out for many. Poured out. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12 says of the same. Why was it poured out? For the many, or for many, for the sins of many, for many who would respond, it was poured out. Finally, Jesus looked forward to the coming kingdom when he would drink again of the cup. Look at verse 25. Truly I say to you, again, I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew, drink it new in the kingdom of God. In the Passover meal, there were multiple cups of wine. There's actually a fourth cup. And the fourth cup was a cup of consummation. It was fulfillment. Jesus doesn't drink the fourth cup at the Passover meal. What he's indicating is the fulfillment, the consummation is yet to come. What is yet to come, the kingdom that is coming, is coming. It's not yet. And I won't drink the fourth cup until I come again. Until that day when he returns. Until that day when his kingdom is established. And we say with the Apostle John, even so, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus now. Establish the kingdom. Drink of the new cup. Drink of the cup in, the new, in a new way in the kingdom. Jesus instituted here and authorized a new meal, a new supper, in which, which was continued by the apostles and the early church, and today is practiced by faithful churches all around the world. This service is bread and cup, both reminding us of his death and proclaiming his coming. This remembrance, again, Ward Wearsby says, is a present participation in a past event. That's what we're doing. In just a moment, we're going to take of the bread, reminding us of the body of Jesus, a past event. We're going to take of the, the cup, reminding us of the blood that was shed, a past event. And those past events are to remind us of what he has done and also for us to with joy proclaim that Jesus is not dead. He rose again and is coming again. And so as we come to the table this morning, we observe the Lord's Supper. We do so with humility. 
We do so with humility, asking God to cleanse us from unrepentant sin. J.C. Ryle writes this, the bread and the wine will remind us that our sins are great and that a great price has been paid for our redemption. But we don't just come with humility, we come with gratitude. We come with gratitude for that great price, for the kindness of God, the grace and love demonstrated to us by his son, on the cross. And Father, we give thanks once again for your word. We're thankful for the work of Jesus. We're thankful for the time now, this morning, for us to remember the work of Jesus. And we pray that that would impact our life this week, that we would remember again, we would rehearse again the good news that Christ died he was buried and rose again in order that we might have life. And in one day soon is coming again to receive us unto himself that where he is, so will we be also. Oh God, we give thanks. In your name we pray. Amen. Oh God, you-